One of the claims of postmodernism is that there is no such thing as a meta-narrative. There is no overarching storyline that explains the world that we live in. Rather, we live in a world that's made up of billions of different little storylines, and the communities make up their own storylines. There are all kinds of narratives that shape our world. You know, as a historian, what I appreciate about this thought is that it's really helped uh, highlight that amid all of the big world event, uh, events of world history, uh, that there are still lots of significant stories happening among individual people and in parts of the world that we tend to forget. Uh, so there are a lot of historians today who are working hard to uncover the stories of, of marginalized peoples, of, of slaves, of women, of, of all kinds of people that have been overlooked so often in the study of history. And yet I think one of the effects of this view of the world is that it has created a world that is uh, incredibly sort of individualistic and isolating. You know, we all have our own stories. We all get to decide what that story is for ourselves. We're constantly being told that we are the hero of our own stories, that everything revolves around you. Of course, if everyone is the hero, then really no one is the hero. Uh, And sadly, we know that far too often our life stories, well, they're not very heroic, are they? Um, They are not so much marked by our own heroic efforts, but so often by our failures, by our disappointments. You know, even more tragically, the stories that we love always end up with the hero riding off into the sunset in victory, right? With, with, With a happily ever after. What kind of story is this where basically all the heroes die? Friend, what if postmodernism is wrong? What if, in fact, amid all the stories of our lives, that there is a meta-narrative? What if there is an overarching story of the universe? What if we are not the heroes of our own stories, but there is one who is far greater and better than we could ever be? And what if there is a story where it doesn't all end in death, but there actually is a happily ever after? Would we be willing to leave all of our individual stories behind and join up with that larger story? This morning, we return to the letter of, to the Hebrews, uh, and here we encounter the story of humanity, uh, the story really of all of our lives. Uh, we looked in previous weeks at chapter 1, which gave us this, this amazing account of the eternal, divine Son of God, uh, greater than the angels, the one who created the world, who is God, who reigns alongside God over all things. And now, having introduced the Son of God, who is higher than the angels, superior to the angels, the writer is now going to shift to an event that shocked the whole universe. This eternal Son became lower than the angels. And in this event, we come to understand uh, the meaning of our stories. 
All right, so if you're taking notes, I want to tell this story in four acts. Four acts. Act number one, the rise of humanity. The rise of humanity. Act one. <clears throat> Look with me. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Uh, the author here quotes Psalm 8, the, the, the psalm that we heard earlier in the service. Here is David meditating on the wonder that the God of the universe cares for lowly, frail humans like us. Uh, the one who put the moon and the stars in their place, he actually cares more about us than those stars. He, he thinks about us. He's mindful of us. And he cares for us. And, and he gets at sort of the wonder of that idea by comparing us to the angels. You know, we, we naturally think of humanity as uh, the greatest of, all, of God's creatures. You know, we are the only ones in this physical universe made in the image of God. But don't forget, God has created creatures who are far greater than us in power and in splendor. You know, these are the angels. Uh, and yet, despite all their glory, for some reason, God continues to be mindful of us. He, he cares about us. He, he draws near to us. Now, we've been talking a lot about angels here in the opening chapters of the book of Hebrews. Well, what are the angels? Well, there's not a ton of information that we see in Scripture. I mean, Scripture does reveal to us some things. Uh, the scripture presents to us the angels as these created, intelligent beings. They, they are spiritual. Uh, they're not physical. They exist in God's presence as they serve him in, in joy and in worship. Uh, we read in the book of Job that the angels existed long before humanity ever came on the scene. Uh, the angels were there at the creation of the world, rejoicing and worshiping God as he lays the foundations of the earth and puts the galaxies in their places. Apparently, we see in, in Job and in the prophets that there's one angel called Satan who rebelled against God and who fell and who led other angels in a rebellion. You know, long before the human story began, it seems that there was this whole other story dealing with the angels. There was this huge conflict that took place, and one that carries over into our age. It seems that at one point, the angels were the main actors on the stage of God's story. And yet, at some point, surprisingly, God did something new. Uh, he created the world that we live in, this physical world, with mountains and trees and moon and stars. And then, Unique in all creation, as the pinnacle of this universe, God created man, made in his image, and yet lower than the angels. And incredibly, God set his affection 
on humanity. I can imagine as, as word gets out among the angels that, that God is going to do something amazing. He's going to make man in his image. Uh, I, can, I can sort of picture this fictional conversation happening among the angels. All right, God, so, so what is this man Going to, going to be like? I mean, is he going to be like us? Is he going to have this, this burn? Is he going to be burning with fire like the seraphim? Or is he going to be covered with wings and radiant with glory like the cherubim? And God says, no, no, no. He's, just, he's going to be part of this material, physical world of this universe. I, I'm actually going to make him out of dust. Oh, okay. Uh, well, well, we've seen you make some pretty impressive creatures already. I mean, I'm, I'm sure this human is going to be amazing. I'm sure he's going to be able to soar like the eagle, swim to the depths of the ocean like the whales. Uh, He's going to have the strength of a lion, have the endurance of a camel. God says, well, not quite. quite. He's not going to be able to fly or or, he's going to have to use his feet to get around places. Uh, You know, as far as the whale, well, he's not going to last very long in water. Uh, In fact, if you just kind of close his mouth, pinch his nose for a few minutes, he's going to die. Uh, and, and as far as speed and strength, well, he's going to be pretty vulnerable. He's going to need to be fed and watered pretty regularly in order to survive. Well, uh, God, I'm sure this, this man's going to be an interesting part of the universe. Well, well actually, I'm going to put my spirit in him and give him dominion over everything. <laughs> you know, I think that perhaps was the biggest shock to the angels. That this creature, lower than the angels, God would crown him with glory and honor. God, the king, who, the one who holds all authority, delegates that authority to man as his vice regent. To rule in his place here on earth. God's very first words to man and woman there in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man and woman together were commissioned by God to fill the earth, to spread over all the earth a God-glorifying dominion. Not, Not to crush life, not to destroy life, but to work for the flourishing of all things. You know, the author, though, here sees in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 8 something bigger than just humanity's authority over the animals. No, he writes here, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. I imagine here as the, the author reflects on humanity's progress through the ages, uh, I mean, living in the Roman Empire, seeing all kinds of incredible technological advances, he sees there, there a shadow of the fact that Humanity has been given dominion over all things, all aspects of life. All this from these creatures who are lower than the angels. I imagine for the angels, this inspired awe and wonder. For proud Satan, this only filled them with hatred. And ever since the creation of man, Satan conspired to turn humanity against God, to cast them down from their dominion. Which brings us to Act 2, Act 2, the fall of humanity, the fall of humanity. You see the writer hinting at that at the end of verse 8. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see the dominion that we were meant to have. We know how the story goes. Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he deceives them. Adam and Eve have dominion over everything except God. God has given them everything. And yet Satan comes to them and says, God is withholding something from you. God must not love you. No, God, God must be hiding something from you. And Adam and Eve hear Satan's lie. They believe it. And they say, no, we don't just want to rule over this whole world. But we want to rule over God too. And so Adam and Eve, like Satan, they rebel against God's commands. And just as Satan and his demons fell, so do Adam and Eve and all their descendants. For their rebellion, God cursed humanity. We who are supposed to rule creation now are ruled by creation. We have been subjected to futility and frustration even as we try to exercise that rule. And worst of all, the worst futility of all is that we are all now subject to death. Death, which cuts us off from all that is good and beautiful and pleasing here in this world. Physical death is now the portion of our physical bodies. And the day is coming when, along with Satan and all his demons, we will be subject to a spiritual death, an eternal torment, away from God's presence forever. Friends, this is the tragedy of the human story. Never was an underdog given so many advantages, such undeserved glory, such affection and love only to blow it, only to throw it all away for a lie. You know, if you are new to Christianity, this is how we explain who we are as humans. You know, we are this strange juxtaposition of, of being made in God's image, crowned with glory and honor, and yet at the very same time, so frail. So dying, so frustrated, so beset with temptation and weakness and addictions and all kinds of problems. You know, Christians, as Christians, we absolutely believe in the absolute dignity and worth and value of every human life. The, the high view that we have of humanity uh, does not come to us from Darwinism. It does not come to us from Marxism. No, it is only possible through the Christian worldview. Only Christianity can defend and explain the infinite worth of every human life, every life made in the image of God. And yet, at the very same time, we are utterly realistic about our condition. We know that humanity is broken. We know that our hearts are corrupt. And we know that we live in a world that is filled with that corruption, that there is injustice, that there is deception. This, this world of glory and brokenness that coexists side by side. You, you know this is true in the world. You know this is true in your own life. Uh, you, you who have the best of, of intentions, you who desire to do what is good, you who have a conscience about what is right and wrong, and yet... There are those days where we fall so short of all of that, 
we betray all that we know we ought to be. Only God's word explains all of that. You know, as much as this world tells us that we live in a perfect world, in a utopia, in some kind of Disneyland where all things go well, the Bible reveals to us that that we live in a world filled with futility. And it's because we are all living under the curse of our rebellion. Every frustration that we experience in life is a reminder that we are still at enmity with God that we are still alienated from God, left to ourselves. If you've ever had a a huge fight with your parents or with your spouse or with your roommates, you, you said things that you shouldn't have said, you did things that you can't take back, and now you have to live awkwardly with them in their house, right? Maybe you're sleeping on the couch, Uh, Maybe you're feeling weird because you don't know if you can use their stuff. Meal times are weird. You you basically feel like you got to hide in your room, right? Life is just miserable. Well, friend, that's what life in this world is like. Um, As long as we are not right with God, we live in an awkward, painful, weird reality. Uh, Our consciences are plagued with guilt, We have to make up all these wrong ideas about God. And nothing fills the emptiness of our hearts. Friend, you have a maker. And until that relationship is restored, all you can expect out of life is just frustration and bitterness and death. This is our story. Who can save us? Act three. Act three. Three, the suffering Savior. The suffering Savior. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to man. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Well, verse 9 here is the first mention of the name of Jesus so far here in this letter. 
You know, up to this point, the author has been talking about the eternal son. And yet, here in this passage, we see two things about this eternal son. First, we see that he, that he, the eternal divine creator, the son of God, was made lower than the angels. That he joined us in our humanity. And he came in the person of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, the son of Mary, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. Uh, The writer here uses the exact same language as Psalm 8 to make the point that Jesus didn't become an angel. He didn't come as some sort of hybrid, half man, half God. No, he became fully human, lower than the angels, in every way that we are human. Now, to be clear, the eternal son did not cease to be God. Uh, rather, as we'll see later, and as we've seen already, that, in a, that he rather takes on our humanity in addition to his divinity. So that in the person of Christ, we have one person existing in two natures, right? truly divine, truly human, which really is a mystery beyond our comprehension. It is a miracle of the incarnation. And yet we see here that this is exactly what he did. Jesus came. He became human, lower than the angels. And not only that, not only did Jesus become human, but we see here that Jesus suffered. He didn't show up in a palace. He wasn't clothed in purple. No, he was born to to a carpenter. He, He grew up just as any one of us had to grow up. He lived in submission to his parents. He lived in submission to the law. Probably until the age of 30, he he worked as a carpenter there in the village of Nazareth, his father's trade. And there, and then around that age, he began an amazing preaching ministry where he traveled throughout Judea, preaching about the kingdom of God. And then after about three years, Something strange happens. He, he was arrested by the Jewish officials. He was condemned to death by Pontius Pilate. He was tortured and he was crucified by the Roman soldiers. And he was put to death. On top of all of his lifelong suffering and living in this fallen world, as the author puts it here, Jesus tasted death. This phrase, tasted death, doesn't mean that Jesus just sort of like nibbled on death. No, it means that he experienced death in all of its fullness. He he took it all in. And yet, as Christians, we believe that Jesus didn't just suffer death randomly. This is all part of the plan of the Father. As we see here, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Verse 9. Uh, This was part of the plan. By his death, he paid the punishment of our sins, accomplished the restoration of humanity, and by that victory, Jesus has been raised from the dead and crowned with glory and honor. Now, for all of you who have grown up in church, all this sounds very familiar. You know how the story goes. But to a typical first century hearer, or even to a 21st century rationalist, 
this actually all sounds pretty far-fetched, right? Uh, so, you know, they would hear this. They would probably say something like, okay, let me get this straight. There were these disciples following their rabbi around for all these years. The rabbi gets himself killed by the Roman authorities. And now you're saying that this is all intentional? <laughs> that this is all part of God's plan to save the world? Really? A crucified son of a carpenter? You know, to the Jews, all this would have sounded blasphemous. Right? The Messiah was supposed to liberate Israel from all of their oppressors, not to get crucified by the Roman, on a Roman cross. Like, what kind of Messiah is that? To the Romans, this would have sounded pathetic. A crucified Savior? I mean, the, the crucifixion was the most humiliating, debasing punishment in the Roman world, reserved for murderers and, and the worst of criminals. And this guy was a Jew. He wasn't even a Roman. The Jews were an occupied people with no glory or strength. How can salvation come from them? You know, down to our day, the objections continue. God made his son to suffer? What kind of God is that? What kind of father would allow his son to go through that? As one theologian puts it, all this talk about the cross sounds like cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Friends, this notion of a suffering savior sounds like foolishness as much today as it did back then. But the author here doubles down on that idea. Christ's suffering, far from being something that we should be ashamed of, it is actually the most fitting way God could have saved us. Fitting. You see that word there, fitting, in verse 10? It was fitting that God should save us through this suffering Savior. The, and it's the fact that Jesus suffered that confirms that he is exactly who he said he is. I want us to trace the author's argument here uh, and point out four reasons why Christ's suffering is, in fact, the most fitting way that God could have saved us. Four reasons why his suffering was the most fitting way that he could have saved us. Number one, Jesus' suffering proves that this is all part of God's plan. That this is all part of God's plan. Verse 10, that's what he's saying there. We see in verse 10 that the author highlights that God was behind all this. God is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. God is the one bringing many sons to glory. And God is the one who has figured out this most fitting way to save us. In other words, the death of Christ was not our invention. This was God's idea. None of us would have thought that the way to save the world was by killing the Messiah. No, only God could have come up with something that counterintuitive. Because, as it turns out, the story of this world is all about God. God is the hero of the story. And the unexpected nature of the gospel shows that salvation has come from him. He is the one who has sent Jesus to be the founder of our salvation. He is the one who has come to save us from our sins. David exclaims, what is man that you are mindful of him? 
or the Son of Man that you care for him. Well, when we consider the lengths that God went to send his Son to save us, to be our suffering Savior, to lay down his life for us, we are in awe, far beyond anything David ever knew. Friends, the gospel, Jesus dying on the cross, was not God's plan B. Jesus didn't just end up, end up on the cross by some freak accident, and then God just sort of figured out how to make the best of it. No, from eternity past, God the Father and God the Son agreed in love and joy that they would pour out their love upon an undeserving people in this way. This was the most fitting and the most perfect way for God to rescue for himself a people, for his glory and for their joy forever. Number two, another reason why Jesus' suffering was fitting is because that his suffering identifies him with us, right? His suffering identifies him with us. That's what we see in verses 11 through 13. It was fitting that God should make our Savior perfect through suffering because the eternal Son has never been ashamed to identify with us, to call us his brothers, his sisters. Verse 11, he who sanctifies, that is Jesus, and we who are sanctified, all come from one source, all come from one Father. The Son is begotten of the Father. We are those made in the image of God. Now let's be clear, the Son is totally unique in his divine sonship. None of us can share in that with him. And yet, incredibly, this is one of the humblest things you will ever hear. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. The author here quotes verse, uh, Psalm 22. This psalm of lament and suffering found on the lips of Jesus as he hung there on the cross. But the second half of the psalm looks forward to God's deliverance, when, when the son of David gathers with God's people in the assembly and testifies to God's faithfulness to his brothers and to his sisters. On that final day, when we gather around the throne, the loudest testimony and the loudest song will be from the lips of Jesus uh, as he praises God for his faithfulness and raising him from the dead. And he does that for our benefit, for our joy. The author here also quotes Isaiah 8. Uh, there in Isaiah 8, the prophet is facing a people who have rejected God's word. He expresses, in spite of that, he expresses his trust in God amid the opposition. I will put my trust in him. And yet, in fulfillment to his promise, to God's promise in Isaiah 7, Isaiah points to his own children as proof that God's word will be fulfilled. Behold, I and the children God has given me. And in that, we see a picture of the Son, right? Amid all of the rejection of the world, the Son rejoices in the children that God has given him. We are his people. We are his children. We are the proof of God's faithfulness to him. We are his portion, his beloved, his bride. Jesus is not ashamed to be identified with us and therefore, he is not ashamed to suffer, just as we have suffered. He, he knows 
therefore, what it is like to be among a suffering people. He knows what it is like to be one of us, to, be, to experience the weight of temptation that comes with suffering, and yet to perfectly resist that temptation. He knows what it is to be in anguish and to sweat drops of blood and pray, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. And yet not my will, but yours be done. He knows what it is like to weep at the tomb of his friend who died. He knows how suffering brings us low and makes God seem so distant that he would cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus is not ashamed to identify with us. And therefore, Jesus' suffering is a deep well of comfort to us because in his suffering, he shows himself to be one of us. He knows our sufferings. He knows our temptations. He knows our fears. He has come into a congregation filled with those of us who have suffered in horrible ways. And he says, me too. And yet, let me tell you about the greatness of our God. Let me testify to the faithfulness of our God. You know, the angels will never understand what we have been through, what we will go through. But Jesus walks into our assembly having experienced exactly what we've experienced. And he comes as a fellow sufferer and he says, brothers, sisters, God is faithful. Jesus would go through all that because he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, his beloved children. So are there any suffering people here this morning? Jesus identifies with you. He says to you, I am with you. Know that in your suffering, you will never be alone. No one else in this world may understand what you're going through, but Jesus perfectly understands what you are going through. And he is walking with you in that valley of the shadow of death, like a good shepherd. Which means when we go to him, he doesn't get mad at us. He doesn't lose his patience. He's not annoyed. No, he, he sympathizes. He weeps with us. He understands and he is ready to intercede and help. We have a Savior who identifies with us. And number three, Jesus' suffering was fitting because in that suffering, he defeats and he humiliates Satan. In that suffering, he defeats and he humiliates Satan. That's what we see there in verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To the Greek philosophers, the idea of a God being able to die was a ludicrous idea. Because by definition, to be divine means to be immortal, means to be impassable, incapable of suffering. That's what the word impassable means. But in the incarnation, the immortal, impassable, eternal son does something unfathomable. 
he joins himself to mortal, passable, finite humanity. He doesn't cease to be God, but while remaining truly God, he partakes of our flesh and blood, joins himself to our humanity, to our mortality. Why? So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The the devil watched the incarnation happen and he thought, here it is. Here's my chance to thwart all of God's plans and to crush the Son of God. When you read the gospel accounts of how Jesus was beaten and flogged and mocked and spit upon and nailed to a cross, you, you have to see there was so much hatred going on. Behind every blow, every curse, was the hatred of Satan against God. And there on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, died. Satan thought he'd won. He put God to death. He did the impossible. Little did he know, he actually set up his own destruction. Friends, Jesus didn't just defeat Satan. Jesus humiliated him. And he did so in two ways. First of all, he defeated Satan with his own weapon. He defeated him with death. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. It reminds me of the story of the little shepherd boy, David. After he knocked Goliath down with his sling, he walks up to him, draws Goliath's own sword, and chops off his head. Jesus disarmed and destroyed Satan with his very own weapon, with death itself. Offering up his life as a sacrifice for sinners, Jesus paid the full punishment that our sin deserved and conquered our sin by his death, setting us free from the fear of death. And he chopped off Satan's head with death itself. And second of all, he humiliated Satan by defeating him, not with his divine power, not with like a divine blast from the word of his mouth. No, he defeated Satan as a frail man in his humanity by doing the one thing that God cannot do, which is to die. You know, Satan hated humanity. How fitting that he would be defeated by one who was lower than the angels. It was, it was a man that plunged us into sin and death, and it is a man who rescues us from sin and death. And in all, in all this, Jesus didn't just defeat Satan, no, he humiliated him. Jesus didn't just win the game against Satan, no, he crossed him over. He did a two-handed windmill. He dunked the game-winning dunk on Satan, drew the foul, left him flat on his back, stood over him in victory. He embarrassed him. He embarrassed him. As Paul writes in Colossians 2, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities 
and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. What does this mean for us? It means that our sin is gone. It means that Satan, who is the accuser, has nothing left on us. It means that whenever we face spiritual warfare, our strategy, our number one strategy, our only strategy, is to point to the finished work of Christ. Satan is causing you to doubt God's love for you. Point him to the finished work of Christ. Satan is bragging about the kingdoms that he owns here on earth. Point him to the finished work of Christ. Satan is reminding you of your sins and all that you've done wrong. Point him to the finished work of Christ. And as far as death goes, well, yes, we still inhabit these mortal bodies. We will all die one day, lest the Lord comes back. But judgment is gone. The fear of death is gone. Death used to be Satan's most fearsome weapon, which enslaved us to all kinds of fears. Now, for the Christian, it is a gateway to paradise. There's a long tradition of Christians not fearing death. Paul writes, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Augustine, in the 4th century, writes, I love this, learn to dance so when you get to heaven, the angels know what to do with you. (laughs) Isn't that good? Thomas Adams, 17th century, we spend our years with sighing. It is a valley of tears, but death is the funeral of all of our sorrows. Death is the funeral not of life, but of our sorrows. Adnaran Judson, missionary to Burma, writes, I am not tired of my work, neither am I tired of this world. Yet when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from his school. I love that. Or Spurgeon, 19th century preacher. The best moment of a Christian's life is his last one because it is the one that is nearest to heaven. We could go on and on. For those who are in Christ, we have been set free from the lifelong slavery of fear and death, fear of death. When you live in the fear of death, you're enslaved to your possessions. You're enslaved to your selfishness. You're enslaved to your bitterness because this life is all you've got. You better get it while you can. But Jesus has come to set us free from all of that. Now, knowing that there is a better future coming, we are set free to live as we were meant to live, to to give sacrificially, to forgive those who wrong us, to love and to serve others. In other words, in setting us free, Jesus is restoring us to our true humanity, to what we were always meant to be. Not, Not in fear and selfishness, but in love and sacrifice and humility and service. And this is what is happening in the church. The church is the kingdom of Christ breaking in into this fallen world as we together display something that the world has never seen before, the freedom of the gospel. Finally, number four, Jesus' suffering is fitting because it makes him our faithful high priest. 
It makes him our faithful high priest. We see this in verses 17 to 18. Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest that we so desperately need. A priest functions by interceding between two parties that are alienated from each other. We have been alienated from God. Jesus comes, steps in the gap, and brings us back together. We need a high priest who is accepted by God. And this is exactly who Jesus is. Though he, was, though he suffered and was tempted, he never gave in to sin. He lived a perfect life of obedience to his heavenly Father. And as one accepted by God, Jesus offered his perfect life as a sacrifice in our place. Okay, now fancy theological word. To make propitiation. What does that mean? Propitiation. That means he satisfied the wrath of God. He assuaged. He satisfied. He fulfilled every demand of God against us for our sins. Notice Jesus paid the ransom for our sins, the payment for our sins, not to Satan, but to God. Because God is the judge. God is the, the one who demanded judge for all, justice for all of our injustices. And in Christ's payment, God was totally satisfied. So that now his justice being fulfilled, there's nothing to keep him from being the loving and gracious father that he is to us. For my non-Christian friends, this is what we're calling to you, you two this morning. You've heard about the predicament that you are in. For your rebellion against God, you are cut off and headed for an eternal death. But this morning, in God's kindness, he has brought you here to hear the good news of the suffering Savior. Jesus suffered and died for sinners like you and like me. And the way to be saved is not by joining the church. It's not by giving money to the church. No, it's by entrusting your whole life to this Jesus. By, by coming under the umbrella of his saving work. All who find shelter in him will be saved. Why would you continue to be enslaved to the fear of death? Why would you continue to serve a defeated and humiliated slave master, the devil? Oh, friends, turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. And even as we journey through this life, we need a high priest who not only can save us, but who can help us to the very end. How do we know we won't buckle to temptation? How do we know that we won't encounter doubts too terrible for us to face? How do we know we will persevere? We know because we have a faithful high priest who can help us. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, do you think Jesus went through all that just to come up short in his ability to save you? Just to let you be stranded in all of your discouragements and doubts? No. No, you have a faithful and merciful high priest. You have a brother up in heaven who is ready to help. He knows what you're going through. He knows every bit of it. And he knows exactly how to help you. Recognize that Jesus' salvation is not just at the cross, but it is ongoing. He, even now, is saving you as he has poured out his spirit upon you, as he 
keeps you tethered to himself as he holds fast to your soul. Friends, don't forget the ongoing saving work of your high priest, interceding for us before the Father, ready to help when we are tempted. Before you go to your pastors asking for help, before you go to your small group leaders, before you go to anyone else for help, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus, your faithful high priest. Pray to him. Ask him for clarity. Ask him for understanding. Ask him for strength as you face your troubles and temptations. I promise you, Jesus is a far better pastor to you than I will ever be, than any of your elders here will ever be. He is the chief shepherd. He is your faithful and merciful high priest. And we help one another another best as we point each other to him, as we encourage one another to find our hope in him. To conclude, Act 4, the restoration of humanity. We have been set free from slavery. We have been set free from the fear of death. We are being restored to our humanity. And as glorious as all this is, it's only setting up a far grander, more glorious story when Jesus Christ returns. When Jesus returns, when we are reunited with our brother, we will finally know the dominion that humanity was meant to exercise. We will reign with him. Jesus, in his solidarity with us, will share all that he has with us for eternity. I love the way C.S. Lewis ends his Narnia stories. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Do you want to be a part of that story? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are exactly the Savior that we needed. We are a suffering, a frail people. We are a sinful people. And Lord Jesus, you have come to save us from all of that. Lord Jesus, we exalt you as you sit at the right hand of God, enthroned above the heavens, crowned with glory and honor. We hail you as our majestic king. Lord, all glory and honor be unto you. And Lord, we, your loyal subjects, lay our lives down for you. Lord, use us as you will. Make us faithful witnesses to your reign, even this week as we go forth. Oh, Lord, be enthroned in our lives and be enthroned here in our midst. We pray all this in your glorious name. Amen.